Acts chapter 13, verse 1 through 13. Are you there? Yes, no? Well, you got some time because I'm going to open up finally now. Acts chapter 13. Oh, that's what this is for. <laughs> oh, man. Acts chapter 13. It says this, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who we also know as who? Paul. Good. You've been listening. As they were worshiping the Lord, said fast, uh, um, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God to the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. This is someone we also know as John Mark, a very important figure that we will learn about next week. I know last week I said this week, but anyways, forgive me. When they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet by the name Bar-Jesus. We learned last week, son of Jesus or son of Joseph, as we would maybe uh, translate it. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas, 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 whatever you want to say. And Saul wanted to hear the word of God, but Elimus, the sorcerer, and I probably butchered that name too, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, here we go, also called Paul. This is very, I didn't mention this last week, but this is the first time that we really see now the scriptures referring to the guy named Saul as Paul. So this is very significant. This is a switch here, okay? Filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Lumus and said, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil and enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind and will not see for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by hand. Super, uh, it's not in my notes, but we don't really have time to go into it, but this is very interesting that here is a parallel situation of what was happening to Saul. Remember when Saul met Jesus? What happened to him? He became what? And all of a sudden he was, okay, so this is not an accident. So I don't have time to talk about the parallels there, but that's just very something very interesting. This is why the scripture is so interesting. So let's continue to go on. Then when he saw what happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the verse we're going to look at this week. When he saw what happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John left them and went back to Jerusalem. Okay. So, over the past several weeks, we've been looking at this passage of Scripture uh, in, in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, because this passage of Scripture sets the stage for what we will see over and over and over again about what it means for the gospel to spread. So we're going to study heavily this first part of the missionary journey, and then what you're going to see as we continue in the book of Acts, it really is just a continuation of what we see here, all these different things that we talk about. And so I don't have time to talk about everything we talked about last week, but this week I want us to look at verse 12. And 
And I want to pause, and I want, I want to take this verse to answer this question. What is it that every gospel witness knows? Because I actually think this is one of the most important things. What we see here, and I'm going to take the opportunity to use this verse, not only to dive into it, but also take some liberty. I'll just say that. Take some liberty to actually talk about how this practically applies to us, okay? So, verse 12, it says this. Let's look at this again. Then, when he saw what happened, this is the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, what? Believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is a very confusing verse, I think, in our English language because how it's written. Because it says, you know, before, here's this miracle of someone going blind, and then it said, the word is then. When he saw what happened, the proconsul believed. If it just ended there, we could think one thing. But then it says something very interesting. It says, because. Why would he use the word because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord? Now, if that doesn't impress you or cause you to question anything, you're not any less of a person. You're not smarter. It just means I'm a nerd, okay? And these kind of things just get me. These kind of things like, like, why is it phrased like this? Why is it like this? And so I did some homework because I'm not an expert in the Greek language of the first century. And if you are, well then, Congratulations, you have no life. But uh, no, I'm teasing. You, you're, you're, you're good for you, good for you. But listen, for those of us who are, you will have known this, that the word used in the Greek language here for the word astonished, or in some of your translations it might say amazed, is a word that those who were writers of what we call the New Testament were very, 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 very intentional about. In fact, this is the only time this word is used in the book of Acts. But it's not the first time we see the word astonished in the book of Acts. That's really important, okay? I know it seems like a minute detail, but it's very important. In fact, the Greek word interpreted as astonished or amazed literally comes from two words. One word, to strike. The other word means away from or by. Today we would probably say that the people were blown away by the teaching of Jesus. So when I say that, does that make sense to you? Is that, does, that, does that resonate with you? Like if you're blown away by something, that's like a whoa, 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 right? That, I mean, to me, that's, that's what it looks, that, I mean, that's what blown away looks like to me. For, for some of you, you're more subdued, you're more professional, you're more put together, so blown away would, be, blown away would just be like, wow, right? Or, or if you're in Minnesota, oop. <laughs> Oop. <laughs> oh, oofta. <laughs> right? So that's, that, that's, that's what that means. Now, in fact, outside of the book of Acts, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, use this word in a very specific way. And, and let me read to you just a few of those verses, and maybe you can begin to see the common thread of the use of this word astonished. I think it's really important. Matthew 13, verse 54, it says this. He... Jesus went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, listen, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Mark, in his, what we call the sixth chapter, verse two, it says this, when the Sabbath came, he, Jesus again, began to teach in the synagogue and many who had heard him were astonished. 
Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? How are these miracles performed by his hands? Now, I, I will tell you that Mark later on uses in our translation the word astonished, but it's not the same word. It's used in a different context. I don't have time to go. I don't want to deviate us. I, I, want to, I want to concentrate on this, but listen. When you heard these past two verses, and when you take into account Luke, what was the common thread of the context that these writers used this particular word that we translate amazed? You see them amazed by teaching, but also by what? Miraculous works, powers. So it's not just this one thing. In fact, when we look at Back at Luke, uh, Luke chapter 13, it says the proconsul, what? Believed because he was, what? Astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Luke was wanting to make it clear that what led to the proconsul being astonished to the point of what he believed in was, at its core sense, the work of the gospel. But it wasn't just a miracle, though the miracle played a vital part it wasn't just the teaching, though the teaching played a vital part. It was this work, this multifaceted work of the gospel. As in the other gospels, astonishment that led to belief was a result of diverse circumstances. Diverse circumstances. Okay, so we put our theological minds on, and for all those, for all the, for all those who, who like really getting a little nerdy on it, we, we satisfied you for today. Now, for those who are like, all right, let's get practical. Here we go. You ready? Ready? Here we go. Here's what every person who is an active witness of the gospel knows. Lasting decisions to follow Jesus often require diverse circumstances. Lasting decisions require diverse circumstances. Now, in and of itself, that phrase isn't overwhelming. And I think some of you who follow Jesus might go, well, that makes sense. But how many times have you ever believed in something that makes sense, but the actions of your life <laughs> kind of look like you don't believe that a lot, right? And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about something that I think a lot of us have a disconnect. I myself am one of them who are tempted by this all the time about understanding this aspect of the spread of the gospel, that lasting decisions require diverse circumstances. Because if we're not careful, we could misunderstand how the gospel spreads and therefore misunderstand our part in the gospel. When people tell the story of how they came to lasting decisions to increasingly submit all of their life to Jesus, if you listen carefully, it is a story that is made up of more than just one moment. The journey towards deep-rooted submission to Jesus for most people often comes through a trail with many stopping points. If I could use the illustration of like a, you know, hiking trail. There's a lot of, what do you call the viewpoints? What are those things like, you're, like when you're driving up to, uh, to Duluth? What do they call those? Scenic, scenic points, right? So on this journey of following Jesus, there are many scenic points. Now, some of you uh, are, are the type of person that's like, we can't stop, we gotta go all the way. And then some of you are like, oh, look, let's stop over there. 
good stuff over there. So everyone's wired different when it comes to stopping points, right? Right? For me, every bathroom, literally every bathroom on a road trip is a scenic point for me, and it drives my wife crazy. Like, you seriously have to go to the bathroom again? I'm like, yes! So anyways, but the journey towards deep-rooted submission for Jesus for most people often comes through a trail with many stopping points where their lives intersect with various pictures of the gospel. I think of the story of Kathy Packard, who is part of our church, and uh, just a few weeks ago at one of our missional communities, uh, I was reminded of her story of how she came to a lasting decision to follow Jesus. In fact, all of us uh, shared a little bit about, like, what were the things that made an impact in our lives regarding placing our faith and trust in Jesus. And if you listen to her story, as you listen to other people's story, and your story is probably like this too. Coming to a Clarity Church gathering was a definitive part of how she took her next step towards a lasting commitment to submit all of life to Jesus. But, but, if you listen closely, it was more than just coming to a building and sitting in some rows to hear some person teach about the gospel that led her to making the decision to embrace the journey of increasingly submitting all of life to Jesus as Master and Savior. It was more than that. It included the impression of family members. She talked about an aunt and an uncle who actually looked like Jesus. Even way before she had decided to follow Jesus, she talked about how these, these, these family members, they just left an indelible mark of what it looked like to be people who really followed Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit orchestrating the circumstances of her life that led her to desire a connection to God and faith. Sometimes it was hardships. It was hardships. Sometimes it was blessing. Sometimes it was, you know, answers to prayers. There were these various situations that, that God used, the Holy Spirit orchestrated to lead her to desire more of God, to know more of the gospel. It was the hospitality and friendship extended without agenda by those who did follow Jesus. It was way more than a building. It was way more than a teaching. Why? Because lasting decisions often require diverse circumstances. I mean, think about your story. If you follow Jesus, wasn't it more than just one thing? Wasn't it more than just one thing? And that's true because lasting decisions often require diverse circumstances. Okay, so we set the stage on the argument of understanding that. And I think I see a lot of shaking heads. Everyone's like, yep. Okay, so now what is this? Why is this important? The reason this is important for us to pause and let that really sink in is because if you don't understand that it's often more than just things like true words that help people become followers of Jesus, you will have some wrong assumptions about what it means to help people embrace Jesus as Lord. There are some of you out there who are probably shy about your faith, and if you were honest and were pressed, you would actually admit that <laughs> you actually even struggle to kind of let people know that you are a Christian. It's not because you don't have a deep-rooted faith in Jesus. It's just 
Maybe you feel insecure about the role that you feel you're supposed to play as someone who says they're a Christian and what does that mean and, and, and all the conversations that will follow. There's an intended amount of security. And, and, and if you do, it's often so because you feel like you're someone who's not really good with your words. I mean, that's, that's, that's simplifying it. There are other reasons why people feel that. But for the most part, I, when I meet good-intentioned followers of Jesus who, who struggle with this idea that you know, their life is meant to demonstrate the gospel. But always, the struggle, when I listen carefully, it always comes back to, I just don't know if I have the right thing to say. And, and then I, to me, and I don't say this out loud, because it would probably be really mean and people's feelings would be hurt, but now I'm talking to everyone so I can just offend everybody and then all of you can lynch me later and this will be fine. But the point is this. It makes me want to say, like, whoever told you it was about your words? Like, I know you're fixated on this idea of, like, words, but whoever said that that's what it was all about? Maybe you have way more than your words to offer to help those around you know who Jesus is. And for some reason, whether it's the church you grew up in, the family you grew up in, the message you listened to, maybe even mine in the earlier years, <laughs> someone made you feel like if you couldn't communicate the gospel like a preacher, then eh, you need to wait. And your effectiveness was diminished by it. Consequently, when you're misbelieved, Consequently, when you're uh, uh, misled to believe that people come to faith in Christ because they're persuaded by truth bombs or well-crafted arguments, you can be led to believe that you don't have much to offer when it comes to helping people find Jesus. But then, listen, there are some of you who are confident with your words. And if you don't know if that's you, it's probably you. Okay, because it's, it's probably you. Like, I don't know if I talk that much. Everyone who I've ever said, who I've ever seen say, I don't know if I talk that much. If you look at everyone around them, they're all like, okay, so you probably, it's probably you. There are some of you who are really confident with your words, and, and, and listen, some of you think well on your feet, and you, you are tempted to believe, you can be tempted to believe that persistently trying to use truth bombs or well-crafted arguments can actually be the right way to help people come to faith in Jesus. You actually obsess over, you, and some of you, it might be a brother, it might be a sister, it might be a parent, it might be a child, someone that you care about dearly who is far from Christ and everything that consumes your mind is like, if I could just say the right thing, if I could put the right message in front of them, oh, Pastor Phil talked about this, I'm gonna send them that link and he, yeah, he's really gonna hear the truth, she's really gonna hear the truth, they're really gonna get this. If I just post this verse, if I just repost this thing I saw on Instagram, oh, it's really, really good. It's just, and I just, if I could just drop that truth, they're gonna go, oh my goodness, yes you were right, lead me to the cross, where am I? You know, right? This is what you think. The truth is that there are many factors to someone coming to faith in Christ. Yes, they need to hear the words of the gospel. I need to make that very clear. For people to believe in Jesus, they need to hear the gospel. Please don't misunderstand me. But they also, also 
also need to feel and see the realities of the gospel through people who believe the gospel. And if you have a trouble, if you have trouble with that kind of theology, tell me what in the world the incarnation of Jesus was for. Because the word of God came through the prophets and we did not believe. We had the words, but Jesus became God among us. Why? Because we needed to feel. We needed to see. Thomas needed to touch the hands. So there's this aspect I think sometimes we forget. And if you were asking me what this practically looks like, I would tell you that it is my opinion, opinion, so we started with the Bible, we went to the Greek, we set the argument, okay, so we're getting, this is where you can start maybe throwing out what I say or not, so now we're going to get to my opinion. It's my opinion that those who have decided to follow Jesus and live the way of Jesus as the primary focus of their life to live on mission by practicing two very simple things. Side note, when I say the word simple, it does not mean easy. In fact, the two things I'm going to talk about are extremely difficult. Extremely difficult. And I have even been tempted more than once in my lifetime, even of recently, okay? Just, I'm I co-struggler in this. I've struggled to embrace both of these things. So here are the two simple principles for embracing the kind of living that allows the gospel of Jesus to spread through you instead of in spite of you if the truth is that lasting decisions require different circumstances. One, it's important that you invest time in learning to live life as family with your local church. I think I've heard this before. Didn't he say this three weeks ago? Is he just regurgitating his messages? I don't know. Maybe we need to find another church. <laughs> yes, I said this a few weeks ago, but this is really, really, really important. If you've been around us for a while, you'll hear me say this more than once. If you actually want to be a follower of Jesus that follows the way of Jesus, then you really do have to invest time in learning to live life as family with a local church. Because, first of all, we made the introductory point that the gospel starts with the church, right? We said that in week one. And really, this is how Jesus said the world we will know, the, the world we will, the world will know, we, you say that twice as fast. This is how the world will know we are his disciples. Remember, John 13, 35 says this, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But the reason to live like this, to live life as family with the local church is more than just theological, okay? Some of you, that's what it takes. Okay, that's what the Bible says. I'll do it even though I don't like it, okay? I'm an Enneagram one. I'll do the right thing. But some of you are not. You are practical. You're more three. What works? <laughs> is that right? Would that be a... a I always have to check with Danielle because she's always like saying, blasphemy, you used the Enneagram wrong again this week. <sighs> Here's the practical nature of this. In a study conducted by a, um, an organization called Lifeway Research, where they interviewed people who had been a Christian for less than a year, listen to this, one of the questions they asked was, 
when you were not a Christian, what were the things you didn't like about Christians? It's a very interesting question. They asked people who have been following Jesus for less than a year, when you weren't a Christian, why? Because they remember. What was it that you didn't like about Christians? According to the research report, they asked them to give specific issues, attitudes, actions, and words that turned them away from the church and the gospel. Here are the top three of the top five categories they found that define what the unchurched didn't like about Christians. Now, I'm going to say this. And those of you Christians, please resist being offended right now. This is not saying it's true. It's just saying this is what they saw. Okay? Can we agree? Can we agree online? Okay. Don't turn it off. Here we go. One, I don't like Christians who treat other Christians poorly. That was number one. I don't like Christians who treat other Christians poorly. You're saying that unchurched people are turned away from the church and faith in God because they watch Christian people treat each other poorly? But yet Jesus said, John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We've got something totally messed up. That could be a message in itself. Number two, I don't like holier-than-thou attitudes. We know that one. That's the whole judging, blah, blah, blah. Number three, this one's interesting. Catch this. I don't like Christians who don't go to church. That one surprised me. In this article about the study, it goes on to say, I'll just read this. This is literally what it says. The unchurched saw the disconnect between belief and practice in the lives of Christians who did not or rarely attended church. Quote, you would think that Christians would want to have time together to worship and study, noted Francis, one of the people that was interviewed. But I am amazed how many Christians are just not committed to any church. This was one of the reasons that kept people who are unchurched away from church. Because there's like, if it didn't mean that much to people who say they follow Jesus, it shouldn't mean much to me, so where should I go? Each of us are surrounded by people who are disconnected from God and disconnected from the realities of the gospel. And a watching world can tell that Jesus isn't the Lord of our lives when we aren't even willing to repurpose our rhythms to be obedient to his command to love one another. So, I'm going to talk about this one more time. <laughs> we have communities, and I really think that if you're listening to me right now, I'm going to go out on a limb, and if you happen to be here, you're listening, I'm just going to go out and say, in my best televangelist preacher voice, God wants you, you right there. Look at the camera. Look at the TV. I'm teasing. God wants you to get and connect in a community. Like, that's what he wants you to do. That's what he wants you to do. Now, what does that look like? I don't know. But you need to figure out what it means to repurpose your rhythms to engage his life and family with your local church. That might be this one. It might be the one that you really want to go to, but this is the only one you have because you have too many friends around. It would be awkward for you to leave. I'll just say it right now. 
If you need to leave. Look, it's more, the kingdom of God, the mission of God depends on you connecting deeply with the church family. If it's this one, great. If it's not, do it somewhere, please, for the love of God. We have a world that's dying. Disconnected from God is not getting any better. We need Christians to connect deeply with each other and look like the church. Whether it's here or somewhere else, I don't care. But this is what the scripture teaches us. And if we want to see the gospel spread, we've got to be committed to this. Now, if you want to start here, start small. Start by signing up for a community. Or start by signing up to be a part of making our Sunday gatherings happen. You saw some of you saw Elijah over here. Say, say Elijah's right there. He's, I, I can't, oh, he's still there. The light's blinding. Oh my goodness, I couldn't see him. But uh, he's helping out this week. We're just, work. look, we still have opportunities to help serve. And, you know, th- then maybe, maybe the next step would be maybe to let yourself test out what it would be like to serve for a couple weeks, only for a couple. Like, Elijah, I haven't put him on the schedule. He's just here for this week. If he likes it, he might come back. If he doesn't, well, we'll try something else. Or maybe for you, it's just to actually sign up for a community. Go to my.clarity.church. You'll sign up for a community, but you'll not actually go. Listen, that's fine. I'm saying it's fine. All you ones out there like, well, well, I can't sign up for something that I'm not going to do. So, you know, that just makes me look bad. And just someone somewhere told me that if you sign up for something, you have to go to it. I'm telling you right now, sign up for a community. You don't have to go. You don't have to go. Why? Because you can at least creep on the chat and see what happens. As people who love Jesus and love each other, listen, pray for one another. Rejoice with one another. And then if you want, you can download resources from the message and stuff. Like I, I put literally what I'm reading online every single week, and you can download it there. Maybe that's where you can start. Then maybe after that, maybe the next step after that, you can allow yourself to, be, to, to maybe be put on some kind of reoccurring schedule, right? So we just started, maybe it's a couple weeks. Now I'm going to be put on a regular reoccurring schedule. And I'm not even saying show up. Some of you are on a reoccurring schedule a lot, and you just never show up. That's okay, I still love you. <laughs> But just be put on some reoccurring schedule so that the practice of serving with getting, uh, with serving and getting to know others happens in a more intentional and strategic manner. So it's about strategy. It's about being intentional. Or maybe, maybe after signing up for a community and testing out the waters by creeping on the chat for a few months, you can actually show up to an online or in-person community gathering. We have both right now. So you could, maybe, maybe that's the next step. I just show up once. Now, I do want to be clear about the heart behind what I'm trying to communicate. It's really, really important. As long as I have the opportunity to be the pastor of clarity, no one will be shamed for taking steps towards how they go about growing in spiritual maturity. But no one will be forgotten when it comes to encouraging and even pleading with people to grow up in Jesus. That make sense? You will not be shamed for how you take next steps. I'm just glad you're taking steps. But don't confuse my constant pleading as shaming or guilting because I don't want anyone to be forgotten. 
I don't want a week, a month, a year to go by in your life as you sit in the context of Christian community and not hear that your life matters and it matters that you engage. And so I hope that's very, very clear. If you've chosen to embrace a life learning to increasingly submit all of life of Jesus as Master and Savior, I do not want to forget to actually say the things that need to be said, even if they feel uncomfortable. All right, second thing, and then we're out of here. Is that okay? Kids definitely want to be out of here. Two, so one, actually get involved in a church fellowship. Two, we actually need to spend time investing relationship with those who are disconnected from God. Let that sink in. We actually need to invest in relationship with those who are disconnected from God. Please let that sink in. In the same study that I just told you about from Lifeway Research, the other two of the five, remember I said there were five? I read three, there's two more. Two things that turned people away from the church and the gospel were this. One, I don't like Christians who talk more than they listen. I don't like Christians who talk more than they listen. And the second, I don't like Christians who won't get involved in my life. As the author of this report wrote, one of the many surprises of our study was discovering how much many unchurched persons would like to have a Christian as a friend. Yet very few Christians are willing to invest their lives in the messy world that evangelism requires. It's messy. That doesn't make it beautiful, unbeautiful. That doesn't make it ugly. It's messy, but it doesn't make it, well, let me take that back. It's ugly, but it doesn't make it, it's messy. Oh, goodness gracious. Who hired this guy to be our speaker? Oh, whatever. It's messy, but it's not ugly. It's actually beautiful. So what does this mean? It means Something that not many of us, including myself, admitting, are willing to give up. It means investing the most valuable asset every person has in this world. It means investing, guess what? Time. Think about it this way. If lasting decisions often require diverse circumstances, then what is required to see people within our circles of influence come to Jesus more. What is it? If it's diverse circumstances, circumstances require what? Time. In his book, Joining Jesus on His Mission, pastor, author, Greg Finke, writes this. For busy U.S. Christians, one of the biggest challenges we have in living missionally is investing time in the process of becoming friends with people. We think we need to be efficient with our time. And for many of us, investing in friendship may not seem efficient. We tend to value efficiency over relationship. We're going to spend time with people missionally 
We want to be able to accomplish something as efficiently as possible. That's, that's me. We calculate it like this. How much can we accomplish missionally with the least amount of time invested? That's efficient. Unfortunately, while that logic looks good on paper, dealing efficiently with people for the sake of mission is completely ineffective. In the U.S., we value efficiency over relationship. In the Gospels, Jesus values relationship over efficiency. And he seems pretty effective. A little snarky there, (laughs) but I appreciate it. As counterintuitive as it sounds, it is the inefficient investment in friendship, parentheses, being a friend of sinners, that leads to effective missional results in people's lives. You know this. I know this. It takes time to build relationship with people, right? It takes time. It takes time to pay attention to social cues. It takes time to learn what it means to be respectful, not only in how you view respect, but how the person you're trying to connect with understands respectfulness. It takes time to learn to gently walk around the broken glass of some people's lives or hop over the baggage that seems to be carried by those who are not yet fully healed by Jesus. It takes time as you try to introduce them to friendship with someone who has found affinity not on this earth but in heaven, who claims citizenship not as a citizen of heaven, of earth, but as a citizen of heaven, it takes time. It takes time to prove that your friendliness is more than an attempt to bait and switch someone into a proselytizing conversation. It takes time. It takes time. It also takes time for those of us who follow Jesus. Listen. It also takes time for you and me who love and follow Jesus to to actually be transparent enough. Come on, listen to this. It takes time for you and me to be transparent enough and let down our guards so others who are watching us follow Jesus see what genuine repentance looks like. What dependence on God when everything in the world wants to scream that God is dead looks like. What hope in a God when everything that's in our life is pointing towards hopelessness, they need to see what that looks like, but they don't see that if all we have are just our highlight reels, if all we have are just Sunday morning hellos, if all we have are just these kind of passing, friendly conversations. It requires time. 